Have you ever been afraid of something or trying to deal with something that you weren't really positive was there? I was um, about 11 years old, and uh, my parents used to go on Friday nights to an auction in Lambertville, Michigan. Now, auctions aren't that common anymore, but you think eBay, but in person. <laughs> it's like that. They used to they'd put it up there, and they, somebody would hold up the thing, and they'd say, uh, who give me a buck? Or who give me 10 bucks? 10, 11, 12, 20, 50, and whatever the highest number somebody would give for that thing, that person would take that thing home. And, and they would have thousands and thousands of items. And I used to like to go with my parents to these auctions because I used to get a lot of stuff cheap. I like cheap stuff. You may know that about me. But one Friday night... Um, I was about 11 years old, and my brother was gone, and he was spending the night at a friend's house. And my parents were going to the auction in Lambertville, but I had any money. And I thought, well, that's going to be painful to go there and sit and watch the auction and all these bargain things that I could potentially buy, and I didn't want to go. Now, I didn't have a phone. That didn't exist at that time. I didn't have an iPad or a tablet. Uh, we, we didn't even have cable TV. We had a TV tower. They had like three channels on it. There wasn't anything on TV that I knew I wanted to watch. But I didn't want to go sit through the auction. I thought there was a possibility that my mom might just slip me some cash because she would do that sometimes when I didn't have any money. But I didn't know for sure, and I didn't want to go. And I'd gone once before, a couple months before, when I didn't have any money, and it really was a painful, kind of boring experience to sit there. It was like four hours. And if you're 11, you think 11 years old, sitting there for four hours, can't buy anything, can't, nothing, right? Couldn't go to the snack bar and buy the candy bar, couldn't buy anything that came up for auction, nothing. And I thought, I didn't really want to do that. So I begged my parents to be left home. Now, at 11 years old, I had never been left home before by myself. Now, some people have. I know that people start babysitting at 8 or 9 years old, but I had never. And so I'm sitting in my house, and my parents agreed to leave me at home. I'm sitting in my house at roughly, oh, I don't know, probably 10 o'clock at night. And I know they're not going to be home until close to midnight. And I've got the living room light on, and I have read a book, and I played with some toys and some various things, and I did the chores that they left me to do and everything like that. And then I'm just kind of sitting there, and I'm thinking, now what? What am I going to do? And I started to think about how I was alone, and if someone came, I didn't have anybody to protect me. And then I started to think about, like, uh, well, are, are the doors locked? And so I systematically went through all the house and made sure all the doors were locked. And then after I made sure all the doors were locked, I thought about the windows. And I thought, I think the upstairs windows are unlocked. And there's a TV tower. You can crawl up on the roof and get in. Oh, I think the upstairs windows are unlocked. But then I was afraid to go upstairs because there might be somebody upstairs already that could have got in through a window. And I might go up there and find them. And then there would be a conflict. I was afraid of that. So I went and I got my BB gun, and I had a pump BB gun that you could pump up about 15 times, and it put a little tiny BB through, you know, an inch of cardboard or skin. But eventually later, a little later than this, a couple years later, I got one from that same BB gun in my neck and had to have it surgically removed because we were shooting each other when we shouldn't have been, and the guy pumped it up too much. So this is a very dangerous BB gun. And I got my BB gun, and I pumped it up about like 11 pumps. And I went upstairs and I locked the windows. And then I locked the windows and I thought, but if somebody had already gotten in the house or if there was some kind of evil spirit thing, because I didn't, wasn't a Christian, I didn't know nothing about God or spirituality, I said, they could come in the closets. There could be someone in the closet. So I systematically went with a BB gun and a flashlight and searched every closet in the house, in every room. And even these little attic closets that are off the bedroom, I opened the door, one of them hadn't been opened in a long time, and I looked in there, and it was just cobwebs, and I went and I searched every closet and everywhere. And then I got all done, and I went back to the living room, and I had my BB gun there, and I thought, okay, now what am I going to do? 
And I thought, well, I wonder if somebody, if, if there was somebody or an evil spirit had gotten in a closet and then I, I searched the other closets first and then it like slipped around behind me and it got in the closet that I first searched. So I went and searched all the closets again to make sure there was nothing there. And there wasn't. But I kept the BB gun with me and I think I watched a movie and a couple hours later, my parents came home and I made it through. Now that you might go, no, I've never done that. That's not like me. But I submit to you that humans have a tendency to do one of two things about things that we don't know about. Either A, you're going to go look at it and figure it out and make sure it's good. For me, I had to go check the closets. It's kind of silly, but I checked the doors and the windows and then the closets to make sure that no one had snuck in or that there was no kind of demonic thing or whatever that was hiding in a closet. Sometimes you just got to go check it. And other times you're going to go, I'm just not going to think about it. I'm just going to put it aside. I'm not going to think about it. We've got a number of those things that we've put aside that we're not going to think about until they become until and if they become a real problem. Today we're going to look at the scriptures. Um, as I was writing this message, it occurred to me that if you're a young believer in the house, and we have some of those today, that you're going to have to be a little bit careful because what I'm about to give you is kind of like a big piece of meat, and you're going to have to chew it and make sure you understand it, and at the same time. I like my steaks a little medium rare. It's a little bit like that. Because you have to know what your life is like, what your unseen things are, in order to either address them or put them aside. Right? I can't know that for you. But God can. And if you wanted to do it that way, you can say, Lord, just help me with my unseen things, then you could do that. Um, but the point is, give it your best effort. Go with me then. And maybe get a little excited. Today's topic is actually not that. It is called... Predicting rain, predicting rain, except rain is spelled R-E-I-G-N, rain, like the rain of a king, not rain falls from the sky. So it's predicting rain. So grab your Bibles and go with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. Thank you. Amen. This is God's word. I appreciate you doing that. If you did not voice a little word there or at least let out a grunt or something, please focus yourself nonetheless on the word of God and let's give this a shot uh, this kind of medium rare steak message of predicting rain. Okay, here we go. We're in Luke chapter one. I'm going to read it from the beginning just so you have the context, but I want you to realize we don't need all of this text for the message, but we do need to understand where it's coming from. Okay, all right, here we go. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative. That means a story about the events that have been fulfilled among us. That means the things that they had saw that God had done. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. In other words, Luke was saying, I wasn't there, I didn't see it, but we know a lot of people who saw it and told us what happened. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Now, in other words, he's going to lay out for us, Luke was a doctor, and he took the stories about Jesus and eyewitness accounts and facts and looked up evidence and probably traveled around a lot, whatever. He did all of that to assemble everything we're going to get. So now, what we're about to read then is his starting point. It's where Luke decided to start to make clear everything about Jesus and his ministry and what people saw that he did and what he asked of us and all of that. Okay? So a lot of people, when we start the Christmas story, we want to kind of flip to the right and go over to where Gabriel predicts the birth of Jesus, or maybe even a little further and go to where Mary 
is getting ready to have the baby. It says, and it says the birth of Jesus was accomplished likewise. Okay, So we're going to r- take a run-up at that. But we won't quite get all the way to the birth of Jesus today, but we're going to keep going in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 5. It says, In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah division named Zechariah. So there's this guy, Zechariah, he's a priest. And they were broken down in 24 divisions. And even when they came back out of the exile, only like four or five divisions remained. And they rebroke them down in 24 divisions. And one of those was Abijah, who was a longtime heroic, um, well-remembered king of the Jews. Okay, His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So we have Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean they got everything exactly right ever in their life, but at this time, they were living for God. Verse 7. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. So that's why they don't have babies. When his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. So he was going to go into the holy, holy place, as holy as it is, and he's going to burn incense in there, which makes smoke and smell. Okay? That was his job. Now, this was such an important job that they did casting of lots. He was allowed to do it. And they were only allowed to do it once in their life. So this is the only time ever that Zechariah will be allowed to go in the Holy of Holies. Okay? There are so many priests that they only do it twice a year. To ever get a chance to do it, this is the only time anyone will be allowed, or that Zechariah will be allowed to do it. Verse 10. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. So in the place of authority next to the altar of incense... Right to, to Zechariah's right there, an angel appears. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and overcome with fear. Like, Boom! What? Oh, you scared the crap out of me. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. Okay, now that would be enough warning right there. That's powerful in his life. He's got a wife that can't have babies, and now, boom, she's suddenly going to do it. And he's told he'll name that baby John. He will name that baby John. Verse 14, there will be joy and delight for you and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord, their God. He will go before him, a capital H him, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So in other words, this guy, John, was going to lead the way for Jesus to kind of jump ahead in the story. And he's going to make it clear that the people needed to be ready and then the people would start getting ready for the coming of Jesus. That's what he's saying is going to happen. Now, but this is his birth, John's birth, 18. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. In other words, what sign or how are you going to make it real to me? Okay, I hear you, angel of the Lord, telling me that this is going to happen. But how is this going to get real to me right now? Because I kind of am doubting. I kind of am struggling. I'm kind of not sure. You're telling me my wife, who's beyond child-rearing age, who's always been barren, is now going to give me a baby? It sounds good, but how can I know this is going to be true? The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So in other words, Because he didn't believe the angel, the angel says now, you will be silent and not able to speak until the baby comes. 
or until the proper time, which we'll find out when that is in a moment. 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. They knew something amazing had happened in there, a vision, an occurrence, a meeting with God, something. He kept making signs to them and remained speechless. So he couldn't talk. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. In other words, God is going to make me great because I'm going to have a baby in my old age. It's going to be awesome. But I'm going to wait five months because I don't want people to start thinking maybe. And at two months, you could have a miscarriage and so on. So I want, I'm going to wait five months so everybody can know that this is for real. And I can know that it's for real. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Okay, now we have the mother of Jesus. And the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. What does that mean exactly, the Lord is with me? Boy, it's a, that's a tough one. That's kind of scary. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Now remember, she's betrothed at this time, so she's thinking she's going to get married. So that part of it might not necessarily be a big deal because she's thinking, well, I'm going to get married and have a baby. But then we start finding out that it's going to be God's baby. That's the problem. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob. Notice that word reign there over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I, am, I have not been intimate with a man? So she's realizing God's saying, this is, God's going to give her a baby. How can that be? I've not had any sex. There's not going to be any of that going on. I'm going to have a baby? And the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, it's going to be your baby, but it's also going to be God's baby. And the Holy Spirit is going to make that happen. Consider your relative, Elizabeth. So now she's going to get a sign. And I submit to you, this sign first has come to Elizabeth. Elizabeth already knows that there's going to be someone coming, right? First she knows John, and then John's going to be a forerunner for somebody. And consider your relative, Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. No one would believe that normally, but it's happened. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's slave, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. So there is a warning of what God's going to do. And then she says, okay, God, you do that. Still going on. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. Now, these two women are going to come together. One is over six months pregnant and one is maybe a month at most. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry. In other words, she broke the silence. That's that same Psalm verse we looked at last week from Psalm 100. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry. You are the most blessed of women and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, as soon as I heard you coming in and saying hi, the baby leaped for joy inside me. She who has believed is blessed because what was spoken to her by the Lord will be fulfilled. And Mary said, now this is Mary's song, and Mary said, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. 
because he has looked with favor on the humble conditions of his slave. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation and those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. Listen to what she's saying is happening just because she's pregnant with Jesus. Just because she's pregnant with Jesus, she's saying that the mighty, he's done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, mindful of his mercy, just as he spoke to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So Mary does this song talking about how the coming of Jesus rewrites all of humanity. And then it says in verse 56, and Mary stayed with her about three months. Then she returned to her home. So as Elizabeth's getting ready to have the baby, Mary goes back home. Okay, this is getting this is getting right up there to where we need to be. Now, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy and they rejoiced with her. This is awesome. You've got a son. That's awesome. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. I mean, that'd be awesome to do, right? This is son born in the old age, name him after his dad, Zechariah Jr. That makes good sense. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives has that name. So they mentioned to his father and found out and find out. I'm sorry, I try this again. They motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing label and wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came in all those who lived around them. And all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, What then will be, I'm sorry, what then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. This is the song that we're talking about today. Zechariah, the father of John. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Verse 68, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. What do you think he's talking about? The coming of Jesus. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the clutches of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from our enemies' clutches, to serve him without fear. That's what Tony Tate was talking about when he said, just do it, and if you die doing it, you'll, go, you'll be with God anyway. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from our enemies' clutches, to serve him without fear, in holiness, being completely different, and righteousness, receiving the righteousness of Christ, in his presence all our days. And child... You will be called a prophet of the Most High. Now he's talking to John. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And these are our two verses for today. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet 
into the way of peace. Three things I want you to see in here, and some of it is the overview. I had to, I had to do what I did. I know that was a long text. I hope you followed it all. The first thing is that God is a warning God. God is warning something. Always been warning. Always been predicting. Always been telling. All creation glorifies God and warns us that there is a God in heaven who created all of this and deserves our respect. Has all authority. Has existed for all time. He is an eternal being that goes back to before human thought would have been possible because not even light existed. God. God is a warning God. And through his creation, he has given everything that he needs to tell people you are headed for a cliff edge. You'd better stop before you run over the edge. God's creation reminds us we see death. Frankly, we see it all the time. Literally all the time. Every time you have an ache in a joint or an illness, every time you have something like that, that is death reminding you this life is not forever. As RJ said during the inspirational moment, tomorrow is not promised. Creation reminds us of that. You know how many species of animals have gone extinct since Noah? No, you don't. Far more than we can imagine. And mankind is groping through history trying to figure out what was lost. All creation testifies that next Sunday, one of us might not be able to be here. God is a warning God. God sent the prophets over and over again. When there were no prophets, he prophesied to Adam and Eve himself about the son who would come, about the biting of his heel, about the destruction of the enemy. God sent the prophets and the law. The Old Testament existed and he testified, God did through Moses and in person to a lot of those people about what he was going to do, about what he was in the process of doing. God has been warning people. And some people throughout that time have been hearing and heeding the warnings, and some have not. In Noah's day, he and his family were the only ones to heed the warning. And the results of that were everyone on the earth drowned. Great imagery of that at the Creation Museum and now at Noah's Ark exhibit down uh, in Kentucky. And they show an actual real-time computer-generated image of the flood and how it flooded all the earth. And in the last moment, you see people clinging to high rocks and mountains as the water comes up and just washes them away. You think that they didn't know? They knew. They had been warned. God warned them. And for those who cracked on Noah about what he was doing building that their big ark, they had been warned. Adam only died. A few hundred years before Noah built the ark. The two men were probably alive at the same time. They had been warned. They had the teaching. God sent the prophets in various forms and all the way up to Malachi 400 years before the birth of Jesus. During which time, that 400 years, there were no prophets. And God prophesied that there would be no prophets for 400 years. And the next one who would come would be the one. God has always been warning through the prophets and the law. And here now we have an angel who foretold the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the one who would come before the Messiah. The whole thing laid out in prophecy. God has been warning. And the angel foretold. And Mary could have said, oh, come on, please use somebody else. 
Are you serious? But she didn't. She said, as you have spoken, so let it be. For I am the Lord's servant. God warned. And Christ himself is a foreteller, a warner of what God would do. In fact, there's a great story that Jesus tells about two men who died and Lazarus and the rich man. One guy we get his name, one guy we don't. Lazarus goes to heaven for eternity. The rich man goes to hell. And the rich man is begging the angel there at the gates. He's saying, please, just just let Lazarus come and dip his finger in the water. That man who was in the ashes and amongst the beasts and dirty his whole life and disease, let him come and dip his finger in some cool water and put it on my tongue. Just a bit of sustenance. What do you think Jesus was doing? He was warning those who were listening about where the rich man went and he doesn't want to go there. And the rich man said, but I, at least if you can't spare me, send someone from there to go back and warn my brothers because they'll surely believe. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, no, for if they will not listen to the law and the prophets, they will not listen, even if a man should come back from the dead and warn them. And who do you think he was talking about? Jesus. The ministry of Jesus on earth was largely warning. God is a warning God through creation, through the prophets, through the angel foretold, through Christ. And you could probably break your Bible down better than I can and find some additional Ways that God was warning. Other tragedies. Those who died in the wilderness. Those who fell into the opening earthquake because they resisted Moses. When the Levites strapped on their swords and every one of them massacred other men in the tribes because they were not listening to God. Those are all warnings. God's been warning. Realize God can do whatever He wants to to help us to understand or to stand under his teaching. And some of what he will do to warn us is not pleasant. You may be here today suffering under the effect of some, your mortality, your mental state, your money, your finance, your relationship, your job state, where you live. You may be suffering under the effect of a warning. You may be facing a warning and God is saying, look, you are heading to a cliff. You have got to react but God's warning over all is thus. First of all, it can be broken down this way. The further from the light you are, the greater there will be the darkness. The further from the light you are, the greater there will be the darkness. Now, this light-darkness thing is not geographical, but interestingly enough, if you use light as an example, in real life, actual light, over geography, you can see the difference. I have a flashlight that is painful to look at. It's got bright LEDs in there. I saw one online. I don't know if it's real or not, but I saw one online that you can shine it. You can shine it on the clouds like a mile away. A flashlight. Not talking about a laser beam, but a flashlight. Mm-hmm. And you can see it on the clouds. Yeah. I submit to you that that flashlight that you can see on the clouds, if you look at it from 10 feet away, it will instantly blind you. And a moment later, hopefully you'll recover. But quite bright enough, you might not. The closer you get to light in geography, the brighter it is. The further away from light you get, the dimmer it is. But here now in a spiritual context, God is warning us that the further from the light we are, greater there shall be the darkness. This is relational. And it's about your identity in Christ. We are supposed to be identifying with Jesus Christ who in a sense is the light and the light in us 
And as we do that, the closer to him we walk, the greater the light, the less the darkness. The further from him we walk, the greater the darkness, the less the light. If you go into a dark room and turn on the light, the, the darkness will recede. You thought I was going to say go away, but it actually doesn't. Look at the chair of the person in front of you. Look on the floor. What do you see? You see a shadow. There is darkness there. It's a gradient of darkness. It's not total darkness, but there is darkness there. Under uh, Brother Tony Brister's wearing a collared shirt. Under his collar is darkness. Now, here's what's amazing. If you lift up the collar, can you see the darkness? No, because you will be exposing it to the light. So we see that this, this darkness-light combination is not only geographical because his collar is not all that far from that ceiling light that, that for example, RJ's shoulder is completely bathed in the light from the ceiling. But the collar shading part of his shoulder, part of his shoulder is darkness. But as soon as he turns over the collar and exposes the light, it's plenty close enough for the light to be seen. So we understand in real life that our relationship to life is to light is both geographical and relational. But in spiritual existence, it is not geographical at all. In fact, if you come into the presence of Jesus right now, and if you're not saved in, your, in, this, in, in this room, then your geographical relationship to the God of the universe would probably see you destroyed if you came geographically into his presence while still clinging to your sin. But if you're saved, you'd come into his presence and you would become abundantly aware of all the things about you, and maybe even ashamed, you'd become abundantly aware of all the things about you that you know are not quite right. They've not been exposed to the light of Jesus as you come geographically into his presence and you might think you're about to be destroyed. But in truth, in Christ, if you really have been saved, those things can be dealt with and Christ's light would then cover them and all would be good. I'm not talking about geographical relationship to the light. I'm talking about relational and identity relationship to the light. It is a calling. In fact, you cannot have it. You cannot approach God, become like God, walk with God, unless God calls you. Or it says no one comes to him unless he be called. However, if you are willing to hear the call, then you will hear the call. Which is why the word says over and over again, the one who has ears to hear let him hear. In other words, God is calling you into a closer, doesn't matter if you're saved or not, but he is calling you into a closer relationship with him. So those who are far, far away from God, so far because they think they can't even be close to God, God is calling them into a closer relationship with him and they'll cross a line and they'll start realizing, hey, I crossed out of the darkness into the light. God translated me out of the darkness into the light. So now I feel like I can be close to God and the encouragement there is that you will then work to do so. It's a relational identity in Christ that is, arises from the calling of God on our lives. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 22. We don't, we're not going to read the whole thing, but there's just a couple of verses I want to be able to quote, quote, so I'm going to go there myself and look at it. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 2. Matthew 22, if you're following along in your Bibles. I do recommend you do that because if you read it and also listen to me, you will get word intake, which is a spiritual discipline, twice instead of only once. You'll get it in your eyes and in your ears and you'll, hear, you'll remember twice as much of it. That's what I'm trying to say. So Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Beginning in verse 2. 
all the way back over here. Here we go. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent out his slaves to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. And he sent out other slaves and said, tell those who are invited, look, I prepared my dinner. My oxen, fatted cattle have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention. Now, you know how this goes, right? Without, don't read on just yet. You know how this goes. Those who were asked to come, who made excuses and didn't come, they're not allowed to come. And God says, they will never see my banquet. I'll never allow them to come in, right? But he says, go and request other people. Call others. And I'm going to paraphrase it here. Go call anyone who will listen. Anyone who has ears. And have them come in, right? That's, that's the synopsis of the parable as we have it. But I want you to cue in on a couple of verses here that we usually leave out when we're thinking about this. All right. Verse six says, and the others seized his slaves. Those who were those who were unwilling to come. Treated them outright, outrighteously and killed them. So the messengers that he sent out, there were some who really didn't want to come. And they seized the slaves and they treated them badly and even killed them. Some of them. Verse seven says, the king was enraged. So he sent out his troops destroyed those murderers and burned down their city. So there were those who wouldn't come, made excuses. He sent others, he sent his messengers to some others. Some of those killed some of his messengers rather than treating them with respect. And he, the king in rage sent soldiers, his soldiers, to destroy those people who hurt his slaves and then burnt down their city. Verse 8 says, Then he told his slaves, The banquet is ready, but those who were invited were unworthy. Therefore go to where the roads exit the city, invite everyone who went to the banquet. The slaves went out on the roads, gathered everyone. The next verse. But then the king came in to view the guests. He saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. So he said to him, friend, how'd you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Several things that are obvious there to me. First of all, if there's an outer darkness, there's an inner darkness. And if there is an outer darkness and an inner darkness, then there is a place of light to contrast it with. Right? We know the light switch is on because when it's off, it looks different in the room. We don't go look at the bulb every time, stare into the little filament and see if it's on or not. We flip the light switch on, the room gets light, we know it's on. Right? When we flip the light switch off, the room gets dark, we know it's off. So we know darkness. We understand if there's an outer darkness, there's an inner darkness. And if there's an inner darkness, there's a place of light. And I submit to you, if there's a place of light, there is a place where light permeates everything. Like if you were standing in a spotlight and buck naked and twisting in the wind. Versus there is a place where light only permeates some. Like if you were wearing a cloak and carrying around with you a shadow. Right? So we understand that there is a grave from the bright light that touches everything out to the great darkness where the light does not touch at all. But notice who winds up in the great darkness where the light does not touch at all. First of all, God warns everybody. He says, come to my wedding feast. The time is now. Some people attack the messengers and kill them. And God destroys those people and their city. Those who are against those who are being used by God to warn, they get destroyed. That's what happens to them. Then some people do come. And some people come not really knowing why they come. Right? And this guy's like that. He winds up in the wedding feast, kicking back, having a nice steak or grapes or whatever he's eating. And the master king comes walking through and he finds this guy there and he says, why are you there? Now, all the guys got to do is say, well, because your servants warned me, because your servants called me. Anything like that will do. But that's not what he does. He is speechless. Remember last week's sermon? 
Break the silence. Ruah, mar, destroy it. This guy has not learned how to draw near to the light. He's not learned how to relate to the king. He's not heeded the king's warning to those who came to the feast that he is the king. Rather, he's just heeded the warning that there is a feast. There is something. And so he comes a little closer, maybe from the outer darkness to a little inner darkness, maybe, or from the inner darkness to the edge of the light. And he starts to be able to see. Now he's in the wedding banquet. There's light here to see, but he's not letting that light affect him. He hasn't changed inside. He doesn't have an answer for why he's there. And what do they do? They take him up and they put him back in the outer darkness, which has an interesting characteristic. The outer darkness in the long term is only for those, wait for it, who heard the warning. There's not weeping weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness because they're angry where they wound up. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness because they heard the warning either responded to it, but then failed to go further, failed to walk it out, or they never responded to it at all, but they knew what they needed to do, and they wind up in the outer darkness, weeping and gnashing their teeth because they said, I was so close. There's a bounty commercial on TV. Guy just won a lottery ticket. He got a lottery ticket there, won a million dollars or whatever, and there's drink approaching the lottery ticket. They've spilled it. It's going to run up. And they show bounty, slap it right there and stop the drink before it ruins the lottery ticket. If that lottery ticket is ruined, they wouldn't get the claim, the million of dollars or whatever it was that they won, right? And so, if you, in that case, you really want a good paper towel to protect your lottery ticket. Not that you just can like reach out and pick up the lottery ticket. So I'm saying, you just pick it up and then, you know, but it's a goofy commercial. But the point is the bounty comes down and saves it and like that. If you understand that the great blessing that you have received, if you have been warned by God, that your transformed existence better mean something to you or otherwise you're going to be in trouble on that day. If that's part of the warning of God and I submit to you that it is, then you're going to do what's necessary to walk out what you now understand. God was warning not only that this is a relational identity in Christ. You can only be there if you're called, but you can be called if you're just willing to listen. But here in this parable, he says, there are those who have ears. They hear they start to come and they start to kind of like edge out of the darkness coming into the light. But they don't know why they're coming. They don't know what they're doing and they don't care. Meanwhile, there are those who are making excuses on why they're not coming. And there are, make, and there, there are those who even attack those who say, you must step up. You must speak out. You must do what is right. You must let the light permeate every area of your life. And then there were those who heard this parable that Jesus told, and they have such interesting responses. The Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. They sent their disciples to him with the Herodians' teacher. They said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God, which must have been a lie, because otherwise they would have been responding to the warning. You defer to no one. You don't show partiality. Tell us, therefore, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You know how many times I've been talking to somebody about Jesus, telling them they need to respond to the love of Jesus and the warning of God, and they've come up with some question about, should I pay taxes or not? Or should I do this or not? Or what about that or not? Well, my old church, they used to do this. Isn't that sin? And what? that's why I don't go to church because, and all these excuses, basically, and why they're not responding to the warning of God. And that's what they did. And they were the Pharisees, the evangelical proselyters, which means winning people over to Judaism, of the day. 
They knew the word almost better than anybody. The only people who probably knew it better were the scribes because they were the ones who physically wrote it over and over and over again. They knew it better, but they didn't know the law better or the oral tradition, which was created by the Jews to protect the law. The Pharisees knew all of that. And what did they do? When Jesus warned them that it is possible that you may not come to the wedding feast, Unless you come when called, stop making excuses. That it is possible that you might even wind up in the wedding feast and then be cast out into the outer darkness where we'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When Jesus warned them of that, what did they do? They begin to ask him questions to try to trick him or catch him up so that they can ignore what he said, ignore the warning of God. And I submit to you that people in this room probably, but certainly people in, quote unquote, the church, and definitely people in the world fit into those categories. I'm asking you, what are you going to do when God warns you that what you are doing is not honoring him? I'm not talking about the moment you tell a little white lie. I'm talking about the way you're handling your internals, the way you're handling what's inside you. It's relational and identity. You remember my story to open my sermon today about taking the BB gun and going and looking in every closet. I mentioned I took the BB gun, but I also took something else with me to be able to see in every closet. What was it? Flashlight. flashlight. Good. You're listening. I like that. Okay. So I took the BB gun and a flashlight because I knew what I would find in a closet was shadows and darkness. I took the light into the darkness with me so that I could see when I got there. Because it would be stupid to go look in the closet in the dark and only be able to see like halfway back. The room lights don't reach many of the times. Closets don't have lights. A lot of times in our house, anyway, that's the way it is. So I took a flashlight. Funny thing is, I got to some of those closets and there were boxes and clothes hanging, right? The closets upstairs in, in that house have rails and behind the rails is a three foot by four foot space. And if it's not full of stuff, somebody could easily fit in. In fact, I had done it playing hide and seek or my brother and I set up a little club one time. We put a table up behind the hanging clothes in the closet and we only we were allowed in there. Things like that. So I shined the flashlight in there, and then when I couldn't see, when the light of the flashlight would not penetrate into the small spaces, you know what I did? I moved things around. Moved the clothes over. Pulled the box out. Looked behind. I made sure. And I was having a hard time doing that, holding the flashlight and the BB gun, because there could be a demon behind a bin in a two-foot-by-one-foot space that I can't see into. Listen to me. This is what God is calling you to do with your life. The time that you have while you are here on earth and the time of your birth, the time of your death has this one purpose. Respond to the warning of God and then having done so and being transported into, born again, into the area of the light. Then take the light that is Jesus Christ and look in every dark area of your soul, every burnt out area of your brain, every failed area of your personality. Take the light there and see what is there and transform it to the glory of God. And Jesus spoke again, reading from John chapter 8. He said this, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And we just dismissed that. Yo, Jesus, dotted across my sins. So glad he paid that bill. Oh, Jesus has right to be Lord of my life. And I do go to church and I do tithe and I do serve. And I'm a, I'm a member of a ministry team where I take care of my family. I tell people, if it comes up, if we get in a conversation, I basically tell people, I just, I, if anyone would come and ask me how to get saved, I know what to tell them at least because I've been saved. So I'm walking in the light. That's not walking in the light. That's being in the light. 
You've been called out of the darkness into the light. You have Jesus as Lord and Savior. Great. Hear the rest of God's warning. Wake up, O sleeper. The rest of God's warning is you must take the light that is Jesus into every dark part of your life and dispel those shadows. I thought there could be a demon in the closet. Don't you realize that even the world is understanding this concept because they know a demon could be anywhere. They are understanding this concept better than we are. They would love to have a light that's under their control that they can take whenever they want and look into the dark. That's what therapy is. It's what psychology is. It's what medicine for different problems is. It's what friendship encouragement is. It's not biblical encouragement, but just friends telling you, oh, you know, you're awesome, you're pretty, and you're smart, and everything will work out in the end. That kind of empty encouragement that doesn't actually mean anything, that in fact goes contrary to the warning of God. I'm here to tell you today, if you don't, number one, come to the light who is Jesus Christ and accept him as your Lord and Savior in actuality, it will not work out well in the end. And if you don't, number two, then take that light into the dark places of your life, whatever they look like, and overcome the darkness that is there. Turn over every systematic... By the time you die, you should be getting into the nitty-gritty. I'm not talking about legalism, but you should be looking at every little dark spot, wondering... wondering How do I turn that over for Jesus? And if you don't do those two things, then understand, God is a warning God. And God's warning is thus. His warning is, first of all, there is a a light when you are close to God and a darkness when you are far from God. You were in the darkness, or maybe are in the darkness right now. And you need to become a Christian. You need to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to let Jesus be Lord of your life. You need to let Jesus be the light of life, as John 8 told us. And then take it into every area of your life. It's relational, and it's in identity. Buck naked in front of a spotlight twisting in the wind. There's nothing about you that would not be seen. And that's the kind of relationship we have with Jesus. You think God doesn't know The word says, don't be critical of other people. You think God doesn't know that you sit around and you're frustrated because someone said something you didn't like, because something didn't go the way you didn't like. Now, we're specifically admonished not to be complainers as they were when Israel was coming out of Egypt, right? And so many of them died in the sand. So then we just hold it back. We just say, well, I'm just going to... But we don't let the light of Jesus infiltrate that critical nature of us and transform it and say, you know, look, I'm sitting here being critical of so-and-so because they did what I don't like. So then I'm going to let, so this is the process. You go, okay, the light of Jesus, right? First of all, I can't criticize them or complain against them. The word literally says that, James 4, you cannot criticize other believers. Look it up, James 4. It literally says that. I said it last two weeks ago when I was talking about the love. If you have something bad to say about another believer, that is not love, it is hate. James says you cannot criticize another believer verbally. Right? So then I'm sitting here, I'm going, okay, I'm not going to do that. I've now let God transform my mouth, right? Good enough. Wrong. The warning of God then extends to now you need to let God transform your inner being because you have a tendency, you would have a tendency to be critical and criticize that person. So now you've got to let your insides be transformed so that when you go, well, I feel like, oh, and you're not saying, you're just kind of grunting it or, or maybe you're throwing something around or you're just trying to figure out how do I get control of that or whatever. Jesus comes in and you go, okay, well, here's the question. Do I have a legitimate reason? Has this person actually sinned against me or against God and I'm aware of it? Do answers. A, yes, I do. What does the Bible tell me I have to do about that? 
So I sit around and feel this way and say nothing because I can't criticize. No, the Bible says I must go and hold that person accountable and talk to them and say, look, this is what I think. I think what you've done is sin against me and against God or against so-and-so and against God. And so you talk to them, beginning of Matthew 18, accountability. And if they turn from their sin, the word, the word says, then you have saved a brother. I submit to you, you may have saved a brother from outer darkness because they may not have been a brother. They might have been winding up in the bright light in the long run. Instead, they might have wound up in the outer darkness because they just came not knowing what they're doing and they're clearly not exposing that particular part of their life. This is what it means to walk in the light. It doesn't mean, let's go air our dirty laundry in front of everybody. It means, Jesus Christ is the light. I'm going to take the light, and I'm going to take it to every area of my life. When I'm feeling critical about somebody, I ask, A, do I believe they've sinned against me and against God? Okay, then what if the answer is no? The answer is no, then I immediately repent. If my anger, my criticism, my critical nature about what they've done is not justified based on sin is involved, then I let it go. You say, well, this is my pet peeve. I just don't like it when they do that. That's where you need to let Jesus come in and fix you because you have a problem because you would think critical of somebody else because they stepped on your pet peeve. This is how it's done. And you'll find a million places. In fact, I submit to you, there are, it's not infinite, even though we think the human soul and eternal is infinite, but it's not infinite. It's lifelong. Not infinite. Lifelong is infinite if you include resurrection. Right? But we're talking about you're here for 50 years, you're here for 80 years, you're here for 20 years, 120 years, whatever. God with you, with the light, you go into every dark place in you and dispel. Meanwhile, we are called as human beings to then take Jesus as the light of the world, and let that light, which is shining so brightly out of us now because we've been letting it go everywhere inside us, take that light into the world so others can hear the warning and be transported from the darkness to the light. Here's what's happening. People aren't doing that. They're not taking the light of Christ and affecting every last area of their life. And so that area of your life that you're not letting be affected by Christ is bumping into other people's lives and that's where the connection is. Instead of it being the area of your life where you have affected, so like maybe you've turned your mouth over to God, you're talking about God a lot, or talking for God a lot, or whatever, but then there's areas of your life that have not been affected by Christ, they bump into that area instead of your mouth, and now they know enough to know what? That the light of Jesus is not actually capable of affecting everything inside of a person, only certain things maybe, and only maybe for eternity. And then we have all these supposed Christians that are out there in the world. They're not living for Jesus at all. They're going to wind up in the outer darkness at the end because they don't know why they're at the feast and they're not allowed the light to do anything in them. And they think they're still saved and they think they're not going to be in the outer darkness because... Those who are in the light, who understand the warnings of God, are not applying the light of Jesus to every area of their life. That's why the unbelievers call the church hypocrites. Because we have these areas of our life that we're not affected with light. Now, am I saying that you need to become a legalist? Or am I saying that you need to go, like, there's nothing else you can do to serve God until you pick out your little problems and whatever, or, you know, you can't possibly help someone get the splinter out of their eye until you get the beam out of your own eye. I understand the parables of Jesus are there. You have a command to walk and take that light into every place that you go, but you also have a warning by God that if while doing that, you don't put it to work in you, the end will not be good. Our God is a warning God. And the warning is thus, that closer to the light, there is much light. Closer or further from the source of light, who is God, there is 
deep and great darkness. I submit to you, it is the kind of darkness that you and I, nobody in this room probably has ever felt. You go in a dark room, you're like, I've got to be careful. I don't want to stub my shin. I've got to be careful. Oh, I can't find what I'm looking for. So you understand darkness. But this is a deep and penetrating darkness in which the only defining characteristic is weeping and gnashing of teeth. A few ver- ver- verses in support of what we've been learning today. John twelve forty six. Jesus said, I am come a light into the world that whoever believeth in me should not abide in darkness. In other words, if wherever you are, if you realize it's dark, get out of there. You don't belong. But more than that, if there's darkness inside you, then that means wherever you go, there's going to be darkness. And you don't get to abide in darkness if you're a follower of Jesus. So you need to apply the light of Jesus. Luke eleven twenty nine to 36 is that passage of Scripture where it talks about a light and it says, does anyone put it under a bushel? And then there's that children's song, right? This little light of mine, right? Hide it under a bushel? No! Right? And what does everybody sing? When they're singing that, what are we saying? What is that message about? The light of Jesus. We all think it's about evangelism, right? So I take in your light so people can see about Jesus. Am I going to hide my light under a bushel so that other people can't see my light and come to Jesus? That's what, we, that's what you think the song is about, right? But that isn't what the song is about, at least not only what the song is about. Actually, he's talking about letting the light of Jesus shine into all the dark places of you. Does anyone who has a light in the house put it under a bushel? Keep it just in one area? Maybe that's what Christians are doing. We're compartmentalizing our lives and lighting up the areas of Jesus. And then the rest of stuff, we're kind of putting it away. We're just not paying any attention to it. When in actuality, what Jesus says we're supposed to do is go into all those places and let Jesus fix them. Let me read the verses upon which that song is based real quick. We are in the conclusion. And then I think you'll get it. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 29. He says this, don't keep striving for what you should eat, what you should drink. Don't be anxious. Hold on. That's chapter 12. Wrong verse. Here we go. 11. I'm almost there. 29. All right. As the crowds were increasing, he began saying, this generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the son of man will be to that generation. The queen of the south will rise up against the in the judgment with the men of this generation. Hold on. And condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh rise up at the judgment with the generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's proclamation. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. What is it? What's the something greater than Jonah? Is it, you just want to say it's Jesus, don't you? He's talking about himself. And why do you say it instead of someone? But he says something is greater. Then it goes to this. It says, no one lights a lamp and puts it in the cellar or under a basket, but on a lampstand so that those who come in may see its light. And that's why everybody thinks we're talking about the light of Jesus and winning people to Jesus so that those who come in may see its light. And I already explained that to you. When you affect all the areas of your life with the light, then people will see the light affecting the areas of your life, right? But listen, he says, your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Still think he's only talking about evangelism here? This is the same passage. He's still talking about the light. He's talking about the lamp. Take care then that the light in you 
is not darkness. Still talking about a light in you that that leads people to Jesus so people can come see you and see Jesus? Is that what he's talking about? Or is he talking about putting Jesus' light in you to work in every area of your life? He says this, If therefore your whole body is full of light with no part of it in darkness, the whole body will be full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. See it? The little light of mine. You could say that it's about telling people about Jesus if you want, and children may want to think that. It's kind of romantic in a way, kind of fun, exciting, whatever. Don't take it from them. But in these verses, it's really about that little light of Jesus that is as a candle inside us touching every area of our lives because we have not stuck it on a bushel, but put it on a lampstand where it can shine everywhere in the house. John 1.5, Jesus said, and the light shineth, I'm sorry, John wrote, in the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Luke 22, 53, this, is, this we read, or no, we didn't either. When I was with you daily in the temple, this is when Jesus is being arrested, he said, you stretch not out your hand against me, but this, okay, hold on a second, I look it up because I wrote something down wrong, I apologize. Everybody is a normal person. Okay, Luke twenty two fifty three. 53. I don't want to misquote it. You're really not supposed to misquote scripture if you can help it. Here we go. Every day while I was with you in the temple complex, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour, listen, this is your hour and the dominion of darkness or the reign of darkness. God is predicting, God is warning, and Jesus himself was warning. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, hath sh- showed in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, 8. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5, 11, so a little bit later. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. The process is there and described. In other words, don't, don't be wrapped up in bad stuff, darkness, the wrong thing. Rather, through the light of Jesus, correct those things. Check them. Put a stop to them. Ephesians 6.12. And that's in the kind of spiritual warfare passage, right? It's telling who we're fighting against. And in there is listed the rulers of the darkness of this world. Those are amongst our enemies. Colossians 1.13. Who have delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Talking about God. 1 Peter 2.9 But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And down at the end of that he says, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 John 1.6 If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. In Jude, he talks about those who were chosen Versus those who are putting God off, making excuses and so on. They were headed permanently for the fire. But those who are chosen, listen to what God says. And it says this, it says, healing even the bits of the soul. Let that light in you reach into all your dark places. But he that saith that he abideth in Jesus, 
ought himself also to walk even as he, that's Jesus, walked. But he that walketh in darkness knoweth not where he goeth. So to the willing, God is saying this. Be warned, a day is coming where you will answer for your choices in this life. Be warned. And that day coming, if you have now responded to Jesus and Lordship, He is in charge of you. If He has become the light of your life, you now need to allow that light to affect every area of your life. So you don't spend a dollar unless you know that God would want that dollar used that way. Don't waste a minute. Don't use it for something else unless you know that God would. He said, but I'm not ready for that kind of commitment. I'm not ready for that kind of challenge to everything that I do. God knows that. God's warning to you is this. Ultimately, that is his goal. Ultimately, that is his goal to affect every area of you so that the light of God can shine in every dark place inside you. Every broken moment. Every hurting. Every feeling. You know what the great, wonderful, amazing, powerful effect of this is? Sometimes people do very mean, very bad things to other people. And you may have the unfortunate experience of going through something like that. But if you have allowed, when you reach that moment, the light of Jesus to touch every area... What's going to happen is evil spirits, the world, your enemies are going to try to drop a bit of darkness in you. And they're going to go, well, I'd like to put it there, but I can't put it there. It's too bright. I'd like to put it there. I can't put it there. It's too bright. I'd like to put it there. But I can't put it there. It's too bright. Man, this light of Jesus, it's like everywhere. We wonder how when a man was forced to dig the grave of his wife and children. They put his wife and children down in there and the soldiers were pointing the guns down at them. But he was able to say, Father, help me. And his wife was able to say, Children, don't cry, for we are right now being invited to the greatest wedding feast ever. How could she say that? Standing in her own grave with her two children with guns pointed down at them. How could she say that? Because the light of Jesus had permeated inside her to the area that they were trying to get to. They couldn't do it. And they shot her and they killed her and they made her husband bury her. And then they took him back and they threw him in a blubbering pool of his own spit and tears in the front room of his house. And they said, it'll be greater punishment for you that you survived your wife and children than if we had shot you today too. But he got up. And the next day, he began preaching Christ again. Two weeks later, one of the soldiers that shot his wife, forced him to dig their grave and then shot his wife and children, came and he said, how can you still be talking about this Jesus after you went through what you went through? And he shared the gospel with that soldier and that soldier got saved. One of the guys that made him dig his wife and children's grave. Ultimately, that man's church would begin to grow. And it is now, mind you, they meet in small sections but it is understood to be the largest church in the world. It's in Korea. With, ten, with tens of thousands of people meeting in 12 to 15 people groups in every restaurant, coffee shop, tea house, everywhere they can. And it all started because that man, faced with the death of his wife and children, forced to dig their grave, 
had allowed the light of Jesus to permeate throughout him. And because his wife had done the same, now you or I in that situation, that's me in that situation, I'd have been like him, blubbering like an idiot, begging, begging God, begging my attackers. But can you, can't you believe it for one second? Just for a moment. Can't, the, can't you believe that Jesus loves you this much that he would come and die on the cross to pay the price for your sins, to be Lord of, the light, Lord of your life and light inside you? To deal with all your dark areas? To deal with everything that's wrong with you systematically, moment by moment, day by day? Because he actually wants to do something amazing. Not just in eternity, but as an effect of the warning, he wants you to be living internally in a bright light that's so bright that if the enemy wants to do something in you, he just can't. That, my friends... Is Christianity. Amazingly. Zechariah knew it before his son John was born. And so did Elizabeth. So did Mary. And ultimately so will Joseph. That the Messiah, the one who was coming, was coming for that purpose. If you think Jesus came to die on the cross, you're kind of short-sighted. It was necessary that he do so. Planned from eternity. Jesus came to become the light of men. Because no flashlight, no spotlight, and no burning candle can penetrate the darkness inside you. But the light that is Jesus can penetrate all the darkness inside you. But it's a calling. But fortunately, it's a calling for any who will listen. If you are here today, and you have ears, hear God's warning and His entreaty. That means he wants you. And James 4 says this, draw near to me, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What do you want today? You want to be comfortable? You want everyone to think you're okay? Is that your role? Or you want everybody to think that you're too broken so that they'll kind of stay out of your bubble, not mess with you too much? Do you want to believe that the scene that's been set for you so far with the job that you have or the income you have or the relationships that you have or whatever, that that's the best that can be right now? Because it's not true. You're headed for a cliff. You're headed for a crash. If you don't allow the light that is Jesus to work His work in you to affect every dark and broken area. And just as you were reborn, if you have been, if you haven't been, accept him now and be reborn. But just as you were reborn, you can redeem all your lies, all your excuses, all your unexplained anger. You can redeem all your illnesses, all your failings on the job, all your mistakes, all your failure to speak up. You can redeem it all in the light that is Jesus. Wouldn't it be nice to stop making excuses? Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I submit to you that that life more abundantly is filled with light. I'm asking you today, repent and turn to God. You say, well, what will I have to do? I don't even know. I mean, I know the things that are commanded. Spiritual disciplines, study your Bible, pray, maybe fasting, service, giving, all the things that we do to work for the Lord, praising God, truly worshiping, breaking the silence, sharing the gospel. 
ultimately, all those things, people are like, well, I, I just can't bring myself to share the gospel. You will. If you live long enough, you will. Well, I just can't bring myself to, when someone lies to me, I just have a hard time forgiving them. You'll get to the point where you, you've forgiven them so fast, you almost didn't notice. You will. Because the light of Jesus is just like that. But let me say it from God's point of view. You had better. God is predicting his reign. Ultimately, it will be only God. And everywhere that God is, is anywhere you want to be. And anywhere that God is not, is nowhere you want to be. Ultimately, he will be the only one. He will be in charge. And if you do not submit now, and consistently, and allow that light to go everywhere in your life, then you may be like that man. And God says, well, how'd you get to be here? Why are you in here and you're not all cleaned up? Why are you in here and you're not holy and white and light like everybody else? And you will be speechless. You'll say, but I, I, did, I believed. I, I believed in Jesus. That's why I'm here. He said, well, if you believed in Jesus, then you should have listened to me. Take him out. Take her out. And the truth is, in that day, you won't actually want to be there. Because that light that you failed to make friends with, that, that light that you failed to utilize inside you will be so uncomfortable. You'll be there knowing, look, at everybody around me has white wedding clothes. I'm the only person, you ever been in the room and you were the only person underdressed? You'll be like, I don't look clean. I, don't, I didn't do it. I didn't walk, I said I believe, but I didn't do it. And when he walks up to you, you'll be speechless because you know you're out of place. And then you'll be cast into outer darkness. That's what God says. Or alternatively, you could heed the warnings of God and let the light of the Lord work in you in every area. And there are many, I understand. And it's a lifelong journey. You may identify some that it'll take a while to get there. But it doesn't mean you can't try or allow. Please, on behalf of the God of the universe, I beg you, consider yourself warned and called. And respond. I ask the praise team to come forward for time and lead us in this final hymn of our service. If you're here today, you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you need to speak out and say, I want to do that. I want to be born again. And if you're here today and you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, maybe you've spoken out before and told others, to say, look, that's me. I am a follower of Jesus. And I commit myself to allow the light of Jesus to affect every area of my life, not just the areas he's thus far. You might be here decades of Christian. And man, I'm so different than I was before I got saved. I'm nothing, like already said, in the inspirational moment. I've changed so much. Great. But those changes are both the warning of God that still more change is needed. They're also the power of God, the entreaty of God, the question, won't you allow this to continue? And even more so, please, please.